It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au. My name is Kay Winnigal and today I'm joined by my co-host Michael Steindl. G'day folks. And Natalie Bucknell. Hello Kay, hello listeners. Now, recently there's been a lot of action in zero-carbon communities around Australia. So today we're going to be talking to Professor Kate Orty about these zero-carbon communities, which she's involved with. Kate's the ACT Commissioner for Sustainability and the Environment, also Professorial Fellow with the University of Melbourne, and is part of the very active Strathbogie Voices Group, which covers a number of communities in northwest Victoria. Kate's also on a number of boards and recently joined the Board of Sustainable Business Australia, which is Australia's peak organisation for businesses on the path to sustainability. Hi, Kate. Thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. G'day. Kate, it's exhausting just listening listing out the number of organisations you're involved with. How do you manage all that? Oh, look, I'm, I'm only one of a number of people, so it's always a team effort. That's the first thing. That's the thing that sustains all of us, I think, knowing that we're part of communities that get this need for a transformational change and we're surrounded by really energetic other people. So I've got a day job like everybody and I've got all this other stuff happening outside, a bit like everybody, really. I don't think I'm very unusual. Mm, Well, you you seem to be an everywhere person. (laughs) So (laughs) talking about your day job, that's the ACT Commissioner for Sustainability and the Environment? It is, it is. The ACT's had a commissioner since 1993. There have been a number of commissioners, as you'd, as you'd anticipate, over that time mm-hmm. and was the first to set up this role of a commissioner for sustainability. So we have a broad reporting role, an advocacy role. We take complaints from the community about what's going on and we take directions from the minister as to reports that he or she might want to see undertaken. So it's a pretty busy office with a small staff and we rely very heavily on really good people in the community and the academics who can assist us with reporting. So what are you currently working on, Kate, in that role? Presently, we've got some work happening with um, a biodiversity study out there in the Lower Cotter, which is a river system which has been very meaningful to people here in the ACT for generations since white settlements and also since before that. And the other thing that we're working on is the State of the Environment Report, where we're endeavouring to, for the first time, I think, really... Uh, work hard to include Indigenous ecological knowledge as indicators. And the ACT is a small jurisdiction. It's a landlocked jurisdiction. So people think that it's probably pretty easy to do this work. But all of this stuff's complex. And it all involves different perspectives and different ways of knowing an environment. So we're endeavouring to do what we can to incorporate all of that. It's amazing work that the ACT seems to do that really is a leader around Australia, isn't it? Yeah. Look, one of the reasons why I was really pleased to be invited to take this role on 
was because the ACT had decided that it would lead with renewables. And we now have a 100% renewable energy target by 2020. And the reason that that's so inspiring is that when the ACT decided to embark on that, Simon Corbell was the minister. He's now, the, of course, the Victorian com- um, public energy or energy advocate. Okay. Mm. And achieving advocate. great things here and in Victoria. And doing great things, yeah. that's right. But up here, he really, he and, you know, and the, and the government really drove renewables and they did it at a time when every other state and territory was retreating from doing something about climate change. So it's a small jurisdiction that bit off a lot to chew and then got on with it and really just did it. And, of course, Victoria is now reaping the benefits of that too with the reverse energy auction. So you're seeing that come through with many projects in the pipeline. And it's fascinating to know that a small jurisdiction that just decides to do it can, in fact, have an impact. It, so it was such I'm an sure. irony, wasn't it, watching right in the heart of a such a climate denialist parliament and ACT just getting on with it so successfully. Yeah, look, I'm fond of saying there's at least two Canberras and there's probably three or four, actually. So <laughs> as you're watching what people talk about from the point of view of the Canberra, that's what's happening in the federal domain and then we've got this other stuff which is a small jurisdiction punching above its weight on on the question of energy and doing other good work as well. I, I think that we overlook the role that, 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 you know, subnational... We have overlooked the role that subnational governments can take in relation mm. to getting into this transformational change. We're seeing it much more embraced now and we've look. I would include myself in this. We've we've often thought if we don't have the federal government, we can't do anything. But I think we will continue to see subnational governments like the ACT, Victoria, leading and pushing to the extent that it becomes a you know a boulder that cannot be cannot be resisted in a way. Yeah. I suppose is probably a metaphor for it. Mm-hmm. So, Kate, how do you, how do you feel that came about in the ACT? Was it just purely coming down to the efforts of you know, a few key people like Simon Corbell and the others you mentioned. It was, or was was there some other impetus that supported them? Look, I think it was an it was an inspired government initiative, but it was also bipartisan. So you you didn't have the same sort of resistance that you saw, say, in Victoria with the the coalition government at the time. I was the commissioner there in Victoria, deeply resistant to climate change, as you all know. Mm. So it was a bipartisan process, but it really was driven by a minister who got it, who inspired his department, who had the backing of good community organisations who were saying, we're part of this, and who found an innovative way to engage with what was a complex problem and seemingly intractable. So it was it was happening on a number of fronts and it really in my view it was it was driven by what was happening in government but it was embraced by what was happening in the public domain and there was a bit of pushing and shoving and toing and froing and lots of open-ended conversations from what I've heard from people who were actively involved. The problem that we have in, or we did have in Victoria, was that there was no capacity to have the discussion really with government during the coalition years. They just simply weren't interested. And many of you will remember that climate change itself, rather like in the Trump, the Trumpian yes. era in mm. the US, climate change wasn't allowed to be used. You had to mm. talk about climate variability. And I'd say about that 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 doesn't necessarily preclude action, but it's a way of 
it's a way of crueling the pitch and it's well, in, you know, it's intended to do so. So mm. language doesn't make everything happen, but language is extraordinarily important when you want to be engaging in a conversation about change. That's, that's both other, hopeful yeah. and also challenging <laughs> to, to yeah, try to, look, to deal is, with it. But, but you, you don't ever overlook the power of what you do. We, we, you talked about Strasbourg Voices uh, as, as you introduced me, and that's a small organisation in a small shire which has, you know, the usual rates, roads and rubbish focus that recycling wasn't big in our, you know, in our worldview. And a few of us got together and said, look, we could do something about this. Let's have a, let's have an environment series. Let's invite people to talk to us and let's get into the conversation. And as we did that, we had no idea how many people would come to any of those meetings that we held. We had no idea whether we'd be able to keep their interest. We had no idea whether we would be dealing with climate denialists as well as people who wanted to get to change and embrace what we know we need to do. And it really did come together in 2015 in a way that surprised all of us. But our enthusiasm sparked others' involvement and then people spoke to each other and a movement developed momentum. And from there, we, we in that small community with a shire that wasn't particularly interested in what we were doing found that there was a, an appetite for renewable energy. We set up a thing called the Committee of 40 because 40 hands went up at one of the meetings to be involved in turning your road into 100% renewable, so we called it the Committee of 40. Now, look, it hasn't always been the 40. It's been 10, it's been 15, it's been 5, and over time, it, you know, the numbers have rolled with, um, with the swell, basically. But we got out of that and the submission into Lily D'Ambrosio's Green Energy Jobs Fund for pumped hydro energy storage. We brought on board the University of Melbourne experts to give us some uh, information about that and provide us with a report and get paid with that Green Energy Jobs Fund money. And out of that, we were told it was a viable enterprise, but because we didn't own the resource, which was all the the dams in the Strathbogie Ranges, we couldn't have control of making something happen. So that's gone on to the back burner. But we've shared that information with Bendigo and with Yakandanda up and down the highway and east and west and I know that people have found that that particular report useful. And that came out of just people sitting around saying, geez, this grant application is a bugger to complete. And they are, as you all know. But we learned how to do that and then we used that information or that skill in putting in our next green energy jobs fund application. And we've just got some great funding from that fund to go around to all the businesses who are interested in Eurora and there's 13 or 14 of them to be talking about solar installations and batteries and we're going to get 20 houses onto a microgrid as well and in all of that we learnt a lot, we learnt a hell of a lot you don't come into this with the expertise that, that you know people in the AEMO and whatever have, you learn as you go and one of the one of the really really powerful things for us was that when we first spoke to one of the councillors about energy at all, uh, he said to us, "Well, no one's interested in talking to you because we're on the edge of the grid, and it means that no one cares." Oh and goodness. of course, the minute we raised that with Osnet, they said, "That's exactly why we want to talk yeah, to yeah, you." Yeah, yeah. Exactly, Kate, you know. Um, thanks. You led straight into our next couple of questions. We wanted to hear about Strathbogie Voices and um, the pumped hydro, and if, if I got that right, um, it's not proceeding because you didn't own the resources. But then the microgrid you just mentioned, is that the totally renewable Yakandanda venture, the TRI? Uh, no, it? no, it's different. There, there's, a, there's a number of us. There's about 12 
community energy groups in northeast Victoria. It's gone gangbusters. Mm. Totally Renewable Yak and Danda was the first to be working on a microgrid, and they've certainly got a microgrid operating in a commercial way in housing in Yak and Danda. And I was up there, I think, probably earlier this year or late last year for the launch of that. And so Tri has already done that. They've been working on microgrids mm-hmm. for some time. Our microgrid interest came directly out of the work that we'd done with the pumped hydro because we just knew that we could do something. We had diesel generators over at the show society's premises, which are turned on, brought up and turned mm-hmm. on every summer. Perhaps so we briefly just define a microgrid yeah. for our listeners. Mm-hmm. Oh, small, a small, a, a number of a number of houses or businesses that are linked together that come together for the purposes of both generating energy, storing energy, and then sharing it. So, if they've got solar panels on their roof, they ch- churn that into batteries. What they don't use gets churned into batteries, and and in fact, can in fact be turned back into the grid, depending on whether you're linked to the grid or not. Everything that's been used so far is linked to the grid, and the stuff we're talking about in Euroa will be linked to the grid mm. as well. Yes. So, so, is that a, a soft- software-based mm. product that links all the yeah, people? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is, and it's called a Ubi, an Ubi, mm-hmm. Ubi? <laughs> an Ubi up there at Yak, and we've all been talking about Ubis. We've also been talking about big batteries because while all of this was happening in Euroa, we also had another crowd that was interested in installing a big battery at the showgrounds where we have the diesel generators. Mm. So it's 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 a it's going to be a complex mishmash of devices, in my view. The really interesting thing will be to bring that complexity together and make sure that we are trying to formalise programs to the extent that we can. But we, in these times of transformation, being open to different ways of doing things will, of course, be one of our great strengths. And I don't think that the, the pumped hydro stuff's gone off the boil. It has in relation to the particular dams we've got, but it hasn't gone off the boil across the country. And as you know, Michael and others, I'm sure you all know, that the work that Andrew Blakers has done here oh, in yes. ANU yep. Fantastic tells work. us that there's 22,000 sites across Australia yeah. that we And, of course, using. big batteries, whether they're literally a chemical battery like the Tesla yeah. one or whether they're a battery in the form of pumped hydro are at their absolute best at, at the end of the grid on the skinny end right. because, A, they can average out your local generation and, B, they can trickle charge over that link to the grid or feed it back over that and, and just yeah. be a buffer for that um, thin link that those places often have. That's exactly right, Michael. And, look, as I say, we weren't energy experts. We, as I say, we had this committee of 40 and we had really different levels of knowledge and we had different skill sets. And everybody who was around that table at that time brought something different to the conversation. And some of those conversations went much longer than they needed to if we'd had experts in there foreclosing on the discussion and saying, this is how you do it. But you have to have that time to have that conversation so that everybody feels that they're on on the same page, to use that hackneyed phrase. And you're, you're dead right. There are different ways of doing this. And that's what we've discovered. And being on the edge of the grid for us suddenly became our great advantage, not our great detraction. If you've just tuned in, we're talking to Kate Orty, ACT Commissioner for Sustainability and the Environment and Professorial Fellow with University of Melbourne. Kate, you mentioned just before about pumped hydro going off the boil, but I understand in Bendigo they're talking about having pumped hydro using the gold mines and the shafts. Yeah, that's... 
that's exactly right. When I say it's gone off the boil, that's in, in relation to our particular proposal. We had three dams coming out of the Strathbogie Ranges, none of them on national parks, all of them in situ, and the work that we got done by University of Melbourne told us that pumped hydro would have been viable, but we didn't own the assets. And that was the beauty of our conversation, I think, with the University of Melbourne. They produced the report. We shared it with Bendigo, who were already thinking about how they might use mine shaft. And Bendigo was very happy to have our report from uh, Dr. Roger Dargaville, who's now gone on to Monash. So I think the other thing about communities involved in this is we do share. We We don't, you know tell people not to look at our homework Mm. and that's what we were doing and I'm confident that's happening everywhere. We gave our pumped hydro research report also to Yak and Danda and I know that there's people in Yak who've who've actually had pumped hydro going in very small scale over, over generations. You know, people who've done this because they've been completely off the grid but Yak was also very happy to have that report and has circulated it widely. Pumped hydro isn't going to go off the boil in uh, across the country in my view in, over the next decade because one of the things that makes it attractive is there isn't any residual waste. You might lose some energy in the pumping mm. but you're not producing lead, You know the outcomes of a lead acid battery or worrying about where you're going to get your, your, your battery components. So pumped hydro is in fact the cleanest the cleanest storage method and that's one of the reasons that we found it really attractive we were we were a bit purist at the time and <laughs> i think we all would like to be so pumped hydro isn't going to go off the boil yeah. but you, lose, you, you lose 10 percent each way but it's so scalable yeah. you can just build a bigger dam that's exactly right and you can flick you can flick it on in a second mm, yes, so you know it's yes. Yeah, it's got exactly the same attributes as, as battery technology, yeah. and and if you've got if you've got as we have the great divide, you know the great dividing range, you've got sites everywhere really, and that's the beauty of it. Yeah. Kate, you you talk about sharing resources between community groups, and um, from my experience with Clean Energy Nillumbik, um funding and resourcing of community efforts is an ongoing challenge. What yeah. how what are your thoughts, or what your what's your experience about effective ways to sustain sustain the group, both funding wise and just energy wise? Yeah, look, it's hard. I would I would be the last person to say that this stuff's easy. It's not. But what sustains us is an enthusiasm for change and a fear of what we don't, what, what's going to happen if we don't. Yeah. And we've we've recently had one of our councillors. We've we've got now two councillors on the Shire who have been Strathbogie Voices personnel during our you know building Strathbogie Voices, and one of them was down at the Darabin um, climate emergency presentations recently, and has brought back notes for the community about that. And while I've been banging on about climate emergency, not everybody does. But it's fantastic when you've got a councillor who's on side mm-hmm. or who gets it or who says, look, I think this is something we need to be thinking about. And so we've, we've, we've done incremental things. We worked hard to get people elected. We weren't as successful as we would have liked to have been. We're not, we're not sort of, you know, Darabin. We're not that successful. But we've worked hard to try and make that happen and we've been comfortable with where we've got to in the short time we've been working on it. But it takes application it takes energy, and it takes collegiality. I, I, I must say that it's easy to find ourselves polarised, and certainly that was one of the experiences of my office about climate change when I was in Victoria. But when you've got a community that's got a number of good people who really get this, that energy and drive is something that is self-sustaining. 
but we do need to look after each other and we do need to know that this isn't um, this is not easy. If it were easy, we would have done it 10, 15 years ago. And there is deep political resistance to it at certain levels. And there's, some, there's business, business, business resistance and other resistance. You know, we, we are all reminded all the time of the IPA and its role in relation to climate and coal. And those sorts of things play out in small communities as well, even though they might not be as well organised or orchestrated or funded. So what we've done is we've we've found other ways to cultivate our community. We've involved ourselves in things like having twilight markets, which talk about you know the cultural diversity in Euroa. It's a very white bread town, our town, but we've had uh, a real push to do that. We got ourselves involved in the Shire's work on the green bins and decided that an organic waste display at the market was a fantastic way to inform people. So we've tried to diversify and not be as um, as seemingly rabid as some people might think we are when we're deeply concerned about energy. And we've, we've involved people in things like book launches and book talks and shared information as generously as we possibly can, even with people who might not be as interested in what we think are the important components of getting to change. And what we have done too is talk to people about the co-benefits of doing things. I think we made that point there at the MEFL, at the MEFL discussions last week that co-benefits are extraordinarily important in cultivating an interest in change. And one of the ways that we've done that is through talking to people about health and about the issues associated with climate and health. So we've had to work pretty hard at that and we've had to be enthusiastic and we've had to We've had to be kind to each other in a way in our in our little gang, yeah, and absolutely. in doing so, we've thought about ways to um, embrace what's happening outside. So, Euroa is now deeply linked to Yak and Danda. We have had a lot to do with the voice of the Indi crew, which got um, so behind Cathy McGowan's election. We've talked to people over there at Newstead. We talked to people at Ararat about their pool. We ran a "Don't Close Our Pool" campaign and talk to other community groups about that and it wasn't you know it wasn't necessarily only the energy people who did that so so we've expanded our remit and extended our reach because we know that communities care about a vast range of things and you can be in a way probably or we can be in a way too focused to involve people with broader remits and we know we need to be prepared to do that. It's an interesting balance, isn't it, between getting yeah. your point across and, and being inclusive. So you, as part yeah. of that, Kate, you mentioned about the role that business plays or can play. Yeah. Um, that leads yeah. on nicely to your role with Sustainable Business Australia. So what's the, the main crux of their efforts? Yeah. Look, Sustainable Business Australia has been going for some while and I'm one of the very latecomers onto that board, co-opted onto it, and it's associated with the World and Sustainable Business Council, so that's the link. And one of the reasons that I'm involved there is that I chair the Bankshire Foundation Board and you would all be aware of the Bankshire, the Bankshire Awards and they certainly every year give an award to business and to community and to a range of people who are interested in sustainability. So I came into it through Bankshire and then from Bankshire through to the Sustainable Business Australia board. We've we've taken the view in respect to that too that there's an awful lot of interest in business about what we can do more broadly and with the Green Energy Jobs Fund 
application that we just put in for Euroa. One of our one of our team who is very involved as a business person herself in Euroa went around and literally sat down and spoke to 13 and 14 businesses in the town about their solar panels, about their energy production, about becoming producers rather than just consumers, about batteries, about a microgrid, and found that business was very interested because business can actually see the economic benefit. So the co-benefit for business can be that. But there's also, I think, a fairly interesting commitment and it's across a wide range now amongst businesses who, who recognise that this is reputational as well as economic. It's about making sure that you've, um, you've hedged your risks. Directors of companies are being told if they haven't taken into account the climate risks, they might find themselves personally liable. So there's a sort of perfect storm, I think, and storm might not be the right word, but a perfect, um, a perfect coming together of a range of things that say to business, look, you need to do better. And I noticed that AGL just had its um, uh, its uh, shareholders meeting this week and said that it was not going to be um, continuing to run Liddell Power Station and that that was reputational but also taking into account the risks. So mm. business has worked it out that we're, we're a part of a global economy. We're not, we're not, you know, any longer Fortress Australia, even though some people would like us to be that and we see that play out in relation to some of the way we treat refugees and certainly all the way we treat refugees. But um, there's there's definitely, a, I think, an interest in business and the clever ones are working it out and they won't be left behind. So who are some of these clever ones? Who, who Who's oh, involved well, in SBA? Who, yeah. who are some of the members? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think it's interesting that people like ATL are interested. Yeah. When we when we were talking about what we wanted to do about um, power in Euroa, Osnet was couldn't be couldn't be up the highway quick enough to talk to us mm-hmm. about our energy prospects. And that really surprised us. Look, I'll be really candid with you, that was a surprise that bowled us over. We couldn't believe that a power company would be interested in talking to us in circumstances Is where it- we were saying we want the skeptic we, we in me reduce how much money you make. Yeah, yeah, the skeptic in me wonders is this a bit of a greenwashing exercise. Look, I think some of it is and I right. think we need to we need to be vigilant about that. I'm not saying that they're all involved and certainly I would be saying to anybody who's doing stuff about their super or about where they where they invest their money, do your homework because there is greenwash. There's no question about that. But there's also a range of businesses, I think, that are trying to do the right thing. And in fact, some of the superannuation corporations are really working hard on that. We got Bob Welsh, who many of you, who you three will know, who was in fact the CEO of Vic Super, to come and talk to the Aurora Environment Series in 2015. And he was talking to us about the way in which that superannuation service had already worked out what the risks were and were already thinking about where they invested yeah, their money. Yeah, and when there's money yeah. involved, that's what happens, isn't yeah. it? And they, they see yeah. the well, light. So, Kate, we've just run is. out of time, unfortunately, yeah. because no, we're look, just getting on to this interesting <laughs> stuff. Yep, yep. Yeah, no, look, thanks for your time. One of the things I will say about business is that you never know who's going to be interested in that conversation. When we had that session... A number of our mates who were really interested in biodiversity said, oh, I'm not going to come to the superannuation discussion. We prevailed upon them to do that. And when they did, they all went away and said, I'm going to work out where my super is and I'm going to change where Great. I'm Great. That's mm-hmm. fantastic. So, I hope there's good more note of that to finish on. <laughs> Thanks so yeah, much for your time on. today, Take Kate. Thank, Thank you. you, Kate. Thank you. Bye-bye. We've been speaking to Professor Kate Orty, ACT Commissioner for Sustainability and Environment and also Professorial Fellow with the University of Melbourne. 
The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the climate change solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and is syndicated around Australia on the community radio network. If you want to listen to this show or any of the others we've done, go to the BZE website and click on podcasts. If you enjoy the show and can donate, please go to the BZE website and click on the donate button. Thanks for listening and we look forward to you joining us again next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.